Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Our book club reading today, The Long Ride, is a story of a team of people who in 1989 traveled coast to coast on horseback to raise awareness about the plight of the world's rainforest, an issue that was not on the radar of most people at the time. In his second book about this historic cross-country journey, author Lucian Spataro offers an honest, inspiring comical but thought-provoking account of his attempt to bring attention to important environmental issues and the multiple challenges he faced along the way. The Long Ride is a beautiful fusion between a travelogue, advocacy, and photo journal. Lucian, thank you so much for joining us on today's World Footprints Radio Book Club. Thank you very much. I appreciate you inviting me to take a few minutes to talk to you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Now, I want to clarify, you traveled with a team, but you were the lone horseman on this journey. That's correct. We had a, we had a team of uh, five people on the ride, three horses and five uh, team members, and I was the only rider. We rode three horses, or I rode three horses, and the other team members helped along the way in terms of media and uh, fundraisers, and we had two horse people also that would take care of the horses in the evening and at night. So we had a, a, a strong team. It was a, it was a, it was a team effort. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you must have had a, a, a wonderful photographer um, as part of your team because the images contained within the pages of this book are extraordinary. Well, I appreciate that. Actually, we didn't. And so what we did, uh, it took about two and a half years to compile these images and this book um, because we had to go out to folks who had met along the way who had done some of these photos and sort of resurrect the relationships after 20 years. And we took these photos from people that we met along the way and newspapers, TV, that sort of thing, and had basically compiled them all. And we then had a, a graphic design um, person work with us to sort of um, pull them all together in one look and feel. So it was, it was quite a lot of work. Wow. You created uh, the long ride over 20 years uh, after your cross-country journey and after your initial account in your first book, why the second book, and why did it take you so long to do The Long Ride? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, the first book came out a couple years after the ride. I was in Ohio finishing a Ph.D., and a lot of the content for that first book was very academic. It was a lot of content about the actual environmental issues that we were writing to uh, bring attention to. And um, the book was attractive to people who were very academic in essence, and um, I used that book as part of my dissertation as well. Um, But the second book was more about the ride and the environment 20 years later, and we met a lot of folks who, after 20 years, said, you know, you should write a book about this 20 years later and tell us all what has happened, what's changed, how things are better, how things aren't better, and then bring it into the context of the ride again and use the ride again as a way to open that door up and bring those 
those uh, issues from the back burner to the front burner again. But the second book is is a book about the ride and the team. It's really a thank you to all those who helped along the way 20 years ago. And um, and then we bring in the environmental issues and talk about those as well 20 years later. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, tribute to the, the team that you worked with, to, to the people that supported you along the journey, uh, because it, it's a gorgeous coffee table book. And I must say I was quite surprised when I um, received it. You're very generous in, in, in sharing this uh, with us and, you know, with the World Footprints Radio Book Club. Um, as, as a horsewoman myself, uh, I was really intrigued by your, your planning process, really from the route you selected to the hurdles you jumped to obtain appropriate permissions, and even your selection of uh, the type of saddle. I, you know, my first question when I first heard about your journey is, uh, was, you know, did he use a Western or an English saddle? And so um, yeah. you, you spent, I mean, it wasn't just that, that cut and dry. You, you spent a lot of time, I think, um, researching uh, even the, the equipment that you used. I mean, did you realize how much was going to be involved when you first came up with the idea of the long ride? Well, I think one of the reasons we were able to finish was because people didn't know that we couldn't finish. <laughs> so going into the ride, going into the ride we, uh, we learned a lot. Prior to the ride itself, I trained for about a year and a half. The ride was actually five months, but I trained for about a year and a half on the city streets and highways around Tucson, Arizona. And I would ride these horses, uh, all three Almada horses, uh, anywhere from two to three hours or four hours a day on city streets and highways and, you know, across cattle guards and, and you name it, trying to bring them sort of up to speed and what kind of challenges they would encounter as horses. You know, but once we got into Los Angeles and we began to ride off the beach in L.A. through San Bernardino and the windmill farms, I mean, the L.A. Um, introduction to the ride was really kind of um, fortuitous because we did some really intense, difficult urban riding early on, and then we hit the long expanses of Arizona and New Mexico and Oklahoma and Texas, and um, we uh, had already gone through some of the big urban stuff initially. So it was a great um a great way of doing the ride from the horse's standpoint because they got to be indoctrinated relatively quickly in what they'd be encountering across the United States. But the whole idea about the ride was to bring attention to these various issues. So we had to ride to these big urban areas and have these mm-hmm. big fundraisers and get on the front page of hundreds of papers, and this was all intentional. But at the same time, it presented you know a nightmare for the riders, or for the rider and myself and the horses because riding through an urban area is, you know, dangerous and uh and so we learned quickly uh, about some of those dangers but it was an exciting ride we rode la to new york as the crow flies along the interstates and mm. uh great as the crow flies because we wanted to finish in five months and many of the other people who had done this ride had finished in, in a year 11 months 13 months because they sort of meandered north and south of that straight line uh-huh secondary roads and so i wanted to stay on the the main highway, four-lane highway, so I had to get permits to do that. But it was also the fastest route and brought us to the biggest urban areas, and so um, we decided Mm. to take that route. Mm -hmm. I I want to read a passage, um, actually a a quote uh, from you uh, that's on the back of your, your book. It is known that when people find themselves in a survival situation, 
5% of the people will do the wrong thing, 5% will do the right thing, and 90% will do nothing at all. But in many cases, they all survive, thanks generally to those who did the right thing. The U.S., with 5% of the world's population, has a footprint that is more impactful than 80% of the rest of the world on the planet. Let's be that 5% that does the right thing, and if we do, we will be well on our way to turning this situation around. What inspired that quote? Well, you know, um, it's an interesting quote. I, the statistics uh, came to me in my research uh, from my, my doctorate when I was at Ohio uh, in the 90s after having completed the ride in 1989. And those stats were just overwhelming. It was really hard for me to believe that we could have, you know, 5%, 330 million people and impact, you know, our footprint being the biggest impact on the planet from a number of different perspectives. All the technologies that we produce are now being used around the world to, you know, gin up the economies of all the developing countries. And so there's all the technologies. We're still producing a lot of carbon. We're extracting a lot of carbon. You know, we drive in our consumption. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we drive the, uh, the consumption on the planet by and large, the United States. So we're really the people that can set the example and do the right thing. And so, you know, we're also, on a per capita income basis, you know, the largest consumers in the country and the world as well. So we have we have a lot of options. And I think it all comes down to being informed and educated about how our consumption and what we do impacts the rest of the planet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing that people can take away from this book is that it's all about consumption. It's all about how we manage our lifestyles because when we consume, everybody's watching how we consume and emulating that behavior everywhere around the world. We're sort of setting the standard. You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and I've been talking to author Lucien Spataro about his book, The Long Ride. And I'm also joined by two listener reviewers. Um, I'm pleased to introduce Danielle Johnson, an environmental analyst from Richmond, Virginia, Thank you for joining us, Danielle. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I'd also like to introduce Michael Williamson, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia. Michael, welcome to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. Oh, well, thank you. Glad to be here. So, Danielle, as an environmental analyst, what were your thoughts about the long ride? When I saw the book, I was kind of excited to read it because, one, I love horses, and with my... Um, my background in environmental uh, policy, this was, you know, kind of a good thing. And then just writing or reading through the book and um, just thinking about some of the topics that have come up, um, you know, even though this was back in 1989, we still have the same issues going on today. One of the things that came to mind, I know you had the op- opposition um, going through, was it uh, Arizona or New Mexico, um, with the we don't like your type of people coming around here. Remark. <laughs> Did you face any um, opposition going through some of the coal mining um, communities in the east? Well, you know, it's it's interesting uh, that you asked that question. You know, at the time in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, and even in the 90s, you know, there's always been sort of a tension between uh, environmentalists and pro-business. I'm also a business guy and have started and run companies as well uh, in my past life, so I've been able to walk on both sides of the issue, but the um, that it's really hard to argue with the guys riding across the country on a white horse. Uh, 
it's it's very difficult for someone who you're talking with to say you're not committed, you're not passionate, and they at least give you an opportunity to listen to what you have to say. And I grew up in rural Ohio, so I grew up in the coal mining area, eastern Kentucky, northern uh, southern Ohio, southern Pennsylvania, West Virginia, that whole area. So I'm really familiar with the coal mining issues and the strip mining issues and carbon extraction. So I could, um, you know, so argue all all ends of the spectrum there. And the purpose of coming across the U.S. on a horse was when you ride into a town like, you know, pick at Morgantown, West Virginia, or, you know, Athens, Ohio, uh, these folks, they'll listen because they'll want to first ask you, what are you doing on a white horse riding across <laughs> country? So it's an opportunity to talk to them, and they can kind of relate because, you know, who can argue with a guy who's riding a horse because we've all wanted to do, all wanted to do that in our past lives. Many of us have, you know, when we're growing up as, you know, horse people. So it's really a great opportunity. And so we didn't have, you know, situations come up often where people were really against what we were doing. Uh, the other uh, side of doing this is that at the time, in the 80s, people really didn't know what kind of impact that rainforest down in South America had on, you know, their, their lives in, you know, rural West Virginia or Oklahoma. So we took the opportunity to explain to them about, you know, how that rainforest and the loss of that rainforest could impact their agricultural lifestyle, say, in Oklahoma with no pollinators because those pollinators migrate to the rainforest in the summer or in the winter and they over winter over down there and they come back to pollinate crops in the in the summertime. You lose the rainforest, you lose the pollinators, you lose the agricultural lifestyle that you've been, you know, growing up on over these last couple of decades. So mm-hmm. it really drove home the connectiveness between the rainforest and, and, and our lifestyle here in the United States. Michael, I, I want to pass the mic uh, to you. What was your impression about the book, and, and what are your questions and comments for Lucian? Sure. Yeah, thank you, uh, Tanya. Thank you, Dr. Taro, for letting me join the conversation. Um, I'd like to begin by just by saying that I'm also originally from Ohio and spent some time in Athens, so I really was pleasantly surprised so you began the book with you know discussion of growing up in Ohio and that's great. Um, I I want to ask him specifically about the the blue hole. <laughs> um, <laughs> what did you ever get back to um to exploring that area and, and no I I didn't get back to the blue hole and I always wanted to go back and and do that dive. Um, I mm-hmm. talk about that in the book. I've been a scuba diver and snorkeler and had been a scuba instructor um, prior to my ride. So I thought I could I could pull that off, but I didn't quite do it. <laughs> so I didn't get back to the Blue Hole. It's a gorgeous area, though, and it's really stunning to know that there is a place you can dive that deep and that water is that clear and that visibility is like it is right there in Oklahoma. Yeah, it's really amazing. Well, uh, a follow-up question was was after your your injury, um, and, and the sponsors were, were made aware of that. Like I, I was just curious, like what was their impression or, or their response? As I was reading, I was you know asking myself like, what's he doing? You know, it sounds like he's putting the whole whole you know journey at jeopardy. Oh yeah, no, I don't. You know, well, I was in my late twenties, early thirties, so I I did some things that probably weren't the smartest things all the time. But I think having the experience as a snorkeling diver, I don't think it was too risky an endeavor. I probably pushed it a little further than I should have, but. Uh, you know, a uh, pressurization injury like the one that I got at the Blue Hole and, the, and prior in my scuba diving experience, those aren't the kinds of injuries that will put you out for a long time. 
you can ride and finish a ride with a, a blown ear drum and an oval window. It's not too bad an injury. Uh, although I have lost my hearing in my right ear, all but mm-hmm. about probably 20% of it over over years now since then. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of a, de- a degenerative, you know, um, hearing loss issue now. Okay. Well, um, and then the, the other question is, um, did you actually make it to New York? Because it, it sounds like you, you ended in Maryland. Right. We didn't make it to New York. We, we uh, ended in Saltwater in Maryland. We decided to cap the ride in Maryland and uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we wanted to go saltwater to saltwater, and, uh, which we did, and that was one of our big objectives. We also wanted to um, you know, see as many folks as we could along the way. And the Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, event took a lot out of us. Uh, we had quite a lot of coverage in D.C., and, and we spent a lot of time moving through that area, Alexandria, Virginia, and D.C., and to the East Coast and, and along uh, Pennsylvania Avenue there. And we were just beat, uh, to be honest with you. It had been a long five months. And the extra couple hundred miles up into New York, we had the route cleared, but we had accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. And so the team sat down and we discussed it. And we couldn't get a whole lot more out of, you know, the extra couple hundred miles mm-hmm. because we'd gone saltwater, saltwater. And there was also an issue with the horses. Um, these horses had gone five months on the road, you know, thousands of miles and, and thousands of miles practicing before then. And we retired Sweet William in Oklahoma, so I was riding Sea Ruler and March Along, and um, they were worn out. And um, so we thought, you know, let's not push our luck. We've made it all the way to the East Coast. We got to the salt water. Horses are in good shape. Steam's alive. Everyone's safe. And now it's snowing. <laughs> so I think we'll just cap it right here, and we'll call it a day, and uh, that was it. Okay. And just the, the last question I had is, you know, throughout their book, there was some discussion about possibly setting a record, um, a single, a rider on a single horse. Um, was there an actual record set, and if so, how long did it, did it hold up? So that's a good question. Uh, we uh, did that ride. We were hoping to finish the ride with one horse, 3,000 miles and uh, we weren't able to do that. Uh, we had to retire uh, Sweet William uh, at 1,800 miles in Oklahoma, so we finished the ride with the two other horses. We did set the record for the longest distance covered in the shortest time frame on multiple horses. That record still stands, and no one has yet to beat that record. Um, the prior rides, interestingly enough, um, all started on the East Coast, riding west, so when I was doing the research for this particular ride, I always asked myself, why did they not finish, you know, quickly riding east to west versus, you know, west to east? And so we came to the conclusion uh, that, and I've interviewed most of those folks, when you leave from the east coast, you hit all those urban areas, and it really takes you a long time to get out of that urban environment into the more of the Midwest and the, and the, and the long stretches of open road we can make a lot of distance. And so people are constantly stopping you and talking with you, and you've got a lot of urban challenges, riding streetlights and roads and cattle guards and fences and who knows what. And uh, so you can't make a lot of good time off the East Coast. And so what happens is you have to start sort of late in the spring because it's cold also. It's snowing. So it's difficult to get out of the East Coast before May or June. And, uh, and then you're riding really slow, maybe 10, 15 miles a day, so you don't really get very far very quickly. And I thought, that's not going to work. 
we need to get across the United States in less than six months. And so we decided to ride west to east, get through L.A., and then have those long stretches of open road where we can ride 25, 30 miles a day. And then when you get sort of out of energy and you're running out of adrenaline, you start hitting the big urban areas, but you've got a lot of mileage under you. And so you sort of, you know, ramboed into the East Coast because you've got to go fast because it's getting cold and starting to snow. And uh, But you've got all the big mileage under your belt already. So we decided to ride west to east, and it was, a, it was a home run. The prior record was 11 months, and they sort of meandered north and south of that, that, that uh, uh, strays or crow flies route that we took. And maybe they rode 4,000 miles, but they weren't able to do it as fast as we were. Hmm. So that record still stands. You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club, and we're talking with author Lucian Spataro about his book, The Long Ride. And I'm also joined by listener reviewers Daniel Johnson and Michael Williamson. Daniel and Lucian, I want to, because you guys are the environmental, um, your, your industry is the environmental uh, uh, arena, I want to ask you both. Um, Lucian, in your book, you say that you know, although you raised a lot of awareness back in 1989 when you took this ride and environmental issues were the flavor of the month, um, there really still, you know, there's a lot left to do. And, Danielle, I heard you earlier comment that we are so far off from where we need to be. Why do you both think that is, despite all of the attention, um, albeit, you know, some time ago, uh, but, you know, it seems like the issue of the rainforest, um, the plight of the rainforest is, is, is coming up again. And, of course, um, you know, there's been uh, drives for uh, recycling and, and, you know, there seems to be still some awareness about the way we consume uh, our natural resources. But why do you both think that we're still so far off? Lucian, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, I, I think it, I think it has a lot to do with uh, the fact that people are less connected to the natural world than they've ever been in, in years past. You know, we grew up, you know, ourselves and and, uh, and our kids uh, and our parents uh, off the farm in the agricultural economy, and now we're moving into we've been in the high tech economy now for a couple of decades, but. You know, by and large, the United States is the biggest consumer in the world per capita income consumption multiples and multiples of developing countries on a per capita basis um, is, you know, it's been 40 or 50 years now, 60 years now that we've been in this high-tech sort of production environment. But before that was all agriculture. We all had a connection with nature. And people today don't have a connection with nature. We don't know where the things that we eat come from. And we don't know how, how they, get, they end up on our plates. And um, we, just, we just aren't simply connected to nature. We're not uh, natural organisms anymore. I think that has a lot to do with our, our inability to understand how important these natural systems are because we're not connected to them anymore. Mm. And, it, and, and I think that's a big, big issue. And we, with 330 million people, if we're not connected to nature and the rest of the world is consuming at a rate that's far less than ours, we're driving the boat. So um, I think personally myself, it's this fact that we're not connected to the natural systems anymore and we don't really understand how they provide us with the services they provide. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, big problem. And, Danielle, I mean, you're in the uh, you're an environmental policy analyst. In your work, have you 
found that within the industry you work within, which I, I believe are um, military bases, is there a conscien- consciousness about our environment within your world? Yeah, actually I've seen a change from when I started, when I first started working um, in in the environmental field um, to today. Uh, you know, back in the 80s there was a big environmental push. Um, there were a lot of changes made um, within the federal government, especially um, because at that time there was um, an exemption for federal facilities to comply with environmental regulations that other um, uh, institutions had to comply with. Um, so I came in during that time when there was this, this change going on, and you can see that, um, but there's still a lot that we have. There's still, we still have a long way to go. Um, one of the biggest things I see, I agree with Lucian, that, that there's a disconnect between us uh, people and our environment, and it's just basically our attitudes towards um towards the environment and the impact that we have on it. I mean, I can go down my street in Virginia. We have In Richmond area, we have voluntary, voluntary recycling. My neighbor refuses to uh, recycle, and I've talked to him several times, tried to encourage him, gave him a recycle bin, but he's like, as long as I have to pay for trash, you know, I'm just going to throw everything in the trash where two, three, four other people on the block will come out. I'll look out during our recycling day, and they'll have, you know, all their containers filled to the brim with recyclables. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is is um, the economics behind it. I mean, some people, um, like if you want to buy organic food versus something that was raised on a factory farm, it's going to cost more. And in this time... Um, in our economic cycle, it's hard for people to make that decision. Do I do I buy something that has less environment or less impact that's healthier for my family versus something that's cheaper for my family mm-hmm. and that I can afford to you know feed them? And you know, in the, in the last uh, minute or so that we have left, Michael, you and I are laymen. Well, I can't speak for you. I'm a lay, lay person when it comes to um, you know understanding the environmental issues. But um, did you have any? Were there any takeaways for you when, after reading this book? Well, I just just I guess an, an overall takeaway. Um, the the book left me with a sense of, of questioning myself, like what else can I do? in my own life, yeah, to, to just be, be more environmentally friendly. And, and Lucian, real quickly, was that a part of the um, purpose for this book? Is that one of the takeaways that you want people to have after reading this book? Yeah, and, and I, I think that's one of, one of the key things that we all have an impact and we all can do what we do in different ways. And, and as, as Michael said and Daniel said, if we all do a little bit, it makes a huge impact because when we, the biggest consumers on the planet on a per capita basis, do a little bit, we do a lot. Mm-hmm. So just a little bit makes a huge impact from from that standpoint because we're the biggest user of these resources on the planet. So I think it's a really important thing uh, to sort of inculcate folks across the country about just do a little bit. Because a little bit, by us doing a little, is, it's huge. Be the, become the 5%. The Long Ride takes you on an interesting emotional journey. You'll be inspired to act to protect our natural world. 
you'll live an incredible adventure vicariously through Lucian's words and accompanying photographs. Most importantly, the long ride will plant important seeds that, when watered, will grow a beautiful community garden. If you want to continue the journey of the long ride, we have a link to this book, The Long Ride, on our website at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and view our new discovery tours, including scheduled trips to China, Italy, Hawaii, and our new Galapagos journey. And follow us on your favorite social network. Thank you so much for joining us on this literary journey today, and many thanks to author Lucian Spataro for sharing his journey and for the work he is doing to protect our planet. Thank you also to our uh, panel of listener reviewers, Danielle Johnson and Michael Williamson, for helping to foster an inspiring conversation. And of course, I must also thank the man behind the scenes, my co-host and husband, Ian Fitzpatrick. If you'd like to join World Footprints Book Club as a listener reviewer, please email us at bookclub at worldfootprints.com. George Martin once said, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. So join us next time as we experience another life and a new world through a writer's pen on the next World Footprints Radio Book Club. Until we meet again... Happy reading. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved. New York State is a cradle of the women's rights movement in America. Visit the park at Seneca Falls, where some women got together and changed it all. Your life would be completely different without them. So go to Seneca Falls and learn about them. Let's rock the cradle. Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face-to-face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit worldfootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to begin your next adventure today. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. It is October 1850, and everyone is racing to California to discover their riches in gold, including 16-year-old Sam Nelson. Sam sneaks away at night and boards a sailing ship bound for California in hopes of striking it rich. Sam faces danger, loneliness, and more adventures than he ever imagined. Where does Sam's voyage take him? That is a question we'll have answered with today's book club reading, Samuel Sales Round the Horn. We're joined by today's author, Lynn Glaze. Lynn, thank you so much for joining World Footprints Radio Book Club. Uh, thank you. So Samuel Sales Around the Horn is based on true events, the, the California Gold Rush, 
was Samuel's character also based on a real person? Yes, he is based on my great-great-grandfather who went from Massachusetts to uh, California in 1850. Actually, yes, it was in 1850. Mm -hmm. And did your great-grandfather strike it rich? No. (laughs) He was a farmer when he left, and he was a farmer in California, but he never came back. I'm sure you had a lot of great stories, family stories, though, about his uh, his adventures. Mm-hmm, we did. Uh, actually, he was a man when he went. So this book is, I made him a, a younger because I wanted it to appeal to younger readers. Mm-hmm. It's, so, you know, as I was reading the book, there, there were times when I got a little bit nervous for Sam. Um, you know, some of the adventures he, he experienced were you ever concerned that maybe some of his misadventures might scare young readers? No, I don't think so, because this book is set for people in the fourth to sixth grade, and I don't think that that would scare them. I really don't. They're used to so much TV and books of other books. You're a former um, school teacher, Lynn. How much of your your educational experience really um, played into the writing of this book? Well, I tried to make it as interesting as possible for the age group that I mentioned and also to not dumb it down and uh, just to try to... uh, It's different than what is published nowadays uh, because it is based on a true story and therefore there is no fantasy, there is no... No wizards. <laughs> no wizards, no zombies. It's just what could what could actually happen. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to ask you to read a, a passage from your book. Please uh, give us a little insight about this reading. All right. This is the very beginning of the book, and uh, it tells exactly how Sam got going on this story. Samuel heard his name as he hurried along the waterfront. He turned when he heard it again. Sam, Sam. He looked around, but he saw no one he knew. Sweat broke out on his face, even though the dry leaves from the bare trees swirled around his ankles in the cold wind. No one knows I'm here. He must be calling someone else, Sam thought. My father couldn't have figured out where I went so quickly. He hunched his shoulders and pulled his heavy jacket tightly around his chest. He blew on his hands. I wish I'd worn my gloves. Sam silently lamented, it's cold. I'd better find that ship fast. I have to be on it today. Sam was looking for a square-rigged bark named the Calio. He had secretly, secretly left his home in the middle of the previous night because he wanted to go to California and seek his fortune. He had asked his father permission to leave. No, his father had roared. You will stay here on the farm and work with your brother and me. You will not leave home. But Sam did not want to be a farmer. His father and his grandfather had been farmers all their lives, but Sam wanted to get away from New Hampshire. It was October 1850, and talk of the discovery of gold in California was everywhere. Yesterday he had decided to leave without permission. He sneaked out while his parents were asleep. He knew that his mother would weep and his father would be angry, but he he didn't think they would come after him. Mm. 
You're listening to the to a special children's book edition of the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and I'm joined by author Lynn Glaze, who just read a passage from her new book, Samuel Sales, Round the Horn. Lynn, what was your mission and purpose for writing this book? Was there a message that you wanted to relay, or did you write it strictly for entertainment value? Well, actually for both, because I really want... Uh, young people to read things that are true or almost, or could be true instead of spending all their time thinking about things that are impossible and not useful in today's world. And also, I was uh, entertained because I had the, um, the uh, memoirs from my great-great-grandfather, and so I thought, this is interesting. It'll make a good book. Mm-hmm. We've been talking to author Lynn Glaze about her new book, Samuel Sales Around the Horn. And speaking of young readers, we're joined by two young listener reviewers, uh, my co-hosts for the day, who have enjoyed reading this book and have some questions and comments for Lynn. I'm sure. pleased to introduce Zamika Peterson, a 15-year-old student from Lansing, Michigan, and Jedediah Bonner, a 9-year-old student from Silver Spring, Maryland. Ah. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Hi. 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 <laughs> so, Zamika, we'll start with you. Um, what is, do you have a question or a comment for Ms. Glaze? Um, yeah, did you face any challenges when you were writing the book? Yeah, there are always challenges with writing a book because you want to get in as much information in a pleasant way, interesting way, but it is uh, you, you don't want to do too much. And then when you get to the end, well, of course, when you're on a voyage, you know there's an end. Some books, we might have more difficulty figuring out how to end it, but this one, of course, they finally got to San Francisco, and uh, that was the end. Zamika, what, what was your favorite part of the book? Did you have one? Um, I liked how he um, he made his decision where he finally decided that he was just going to go and do what he wanted to do, even though he uh, he really didn't, you know, think that his parents were going to miss him. Ah, that that's an interesting um, comment, uh, Lynn. Did you did you intend on on that message? I mean, Sam, you know, is an adventurous spirit. Um, he ran away from home, uh, you know, in uh, defiance of uh, his father's wishes. And part of the reason why is that he didn't feel that he'd be missed. Mm-hmm. Well, he was missed because as you get to the end of the first chapter, you find out that his father figured out that he had left, and they figured out where he'd gone. So, but they got there too late. Mm-hmm. He was already on the ship, and the ship was leaving. Jedediah, I'll bring you in right now. What is your comment and question for Miss Glaze? Well, my question is: Is Joey ever going to go to go see Sam? No, I think that the more likely a sequel would be the uh, Ben and uh, uh, Sam's adventures in California. Uh, how did it work out when they got went to look for gold, and what happened to them after that? No, Joe would not have gone. He was a more 
docile person. And of course, this, as we see in the book, it's a very long, hard trip. Mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite part of the book, Jedediah? Yes, Sam. What was that? <laughs> My favorite part was when um when Ben fell overboard and um Sam was calling for help, but nobody heard him, so Sam was helping Ben. Well, I'm glad you liked that. That was exciting because, uh, as you can see on the beginning of the book, the picture of Sam almost fell over himself while trying to get water the first day that he was on the ship. So he was very leery about all this, and but he managed to uh, call attention to the crew, and they were able to rescue uh, Ben. And I mean. And then, of course, there's another fellow that falls off of the yard arm later, but that's the, the water is too cold and it's too late for him. So, mm-hmm. so Sam, Sam became the hero. Now, were were those events, Lynn, part of your great grandfather's, um, or included in your great grandfather's memoirs, or uh, were those stories that you created for this book? They're stories that I created for the book. Okay. Okay, Jedediah, do you have another question? Yes, ma'am. Did Sam ever become famous? Oh, no, 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 he did not. Uh, he was just an ordinary boy who grew up on this trip and then became uh, an ordinary man, and as I said, he never found any uh, gold. Of course, I could change that if I write a sequel, uh, but he... Uh, lived all the rest of his life in California and never went home back to the East Coast. There's a second part that I like in the book. Is um the Captain and Mary B with, with um his friend Red and others went um he, my favorite part was because he knew how to survive by killing the whale but he thought the whale was coming for a ship, right? Mhm. I'm glad that that was one of your favorite parts, yeah. I'm curious, did you, uh, Zamika and, and Jedediah, did you two know very much about the California Gold Rush before reading this book? I did not. I didn't. Oh, I don't know that it's even taught anymore. Of course, I grew up in California, so I knew quite a bit about it, but uh, it is probably not considered important anymore. That's surprising to me because, I mean, I grew up, and maybe I'm dating myself, but um, I grew up knowing all about the California gold rush. I mean, it's, you know, it was a major part of our American history, and uh, and it's disappointing to think and know that it's not taught in our schools any longer. Yes, it is very disappointing. I think history is neglected, and that's one reason that I wrote this book, because I thought that if, uh, when I was teaching, fifth grade was a point where you had a real, lot, learned a lot about American history, and that this would, book would go along very nicely with that to give a more personal uh, take to it. You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club, and we're talking with author Lynn Glaze about her new book, Samuel Sales, Round the Horn. We're also joined by my two young co-hosts and listener reviewers, Zamika Peterson and Jedediah Bonner. Lynn, 
I wanted to ask you, you know, as a former school teacher, um, the, the main character in your book dropped out of school for an adventure um, and to seek reaches. Have you had any reaction from some young readers or even parents of young readers who may be concerned that, oh, my child, you know, may leave school to go out on an adventure? No, I have not had any reaction to that. And, of course, an adventure like this, that was uh, almost 200 years ago, is not possible anymore. Right. There'd be Amber Alerts today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You did an incredible amount of research for this fictional story. What uh, facts were you trying to focus on and why? I read a lot of books at the California uh, Maritime Library uh, about people who had sailed around the Horn and on sailing ships in approximately this age. And I just wanted to get a feeling for what it was really like because I think that's important to be accurate and to uh, to give a real feeling rather than a, a make-believe feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to circle back a little bit. We talked about the um, lack of teaching in our schools today about the California gold rush. Uh, you, you've you done a ton of research on it. You've written this book. You're a former school teacher. And so I want to ask um, my young co-host if they have any questions for you about the California um, gold rush. Jedediah, we'll start with you. Do you have a question you'd like to, to ask, Ms. Glaze, about the California Gold Rush? Okay. What motivated you to write the book? My, what motivated me? As I said, uh, I wanted you and other people like you to know more about history and California history and the fact that the Gold Rush uh, really brought an amazing number of people to uh, California and the gold rush just i mean before that there weren't very many people there was uh spanish territory and after the gold rush it became a state in 1850 uh shortly after 1850 and so uh it was really uh amazing a migration from the east coast the middle west to uh california Lynn, how how long did the California Gold Rush uh, last? What was the period of it was the Gold from Rush? 18, well, they discovered it was 1848, and then, of course, it took a long time for the news to get very far. They didn't have all the wonderful opportunities to find out everything today. And so then the people like Sam, I mean, they, they heard about it, and they thought, well, you know, this is really interesting what we're going to do about it, but it takes a while to get going on it. And so it lasted, um, well, it lasted, uh, I don't know how really how long, because it depended on whether you find any gold or whether you, but I would say the majority of people got their 1850, 1851. Mm-hmm. Are there any uh, famous people, or who are some of the famous people who actually struck it rich during the gold rush um, that you know about? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I'm not really sure that there were anybody who really struck it rich. I mean, you, you go and you'd be able to find 
a little bit of gold here and a little bit of gold there, but not many people really struck it rich. Mm-hmm. Zamika, do you have a question about the gold rush? I mean, I'm I'm surprised you've never heard of it before in your history classes. Is history still being taught? Yeah, well, I mean, they talk about different gold rushes. They just never mention the California one. Okay. Well, actually, this book is is primarily about getting to California, and so the information on the gold rush would be in another book, or if I, if I do one about Sam and Ben and what happens to them when they get to California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, another thing, um, Lynn, just going back to kind of our our school system, um, and I, I come from the educational um, uh, industry as well, um, but geography is uh, another challenging um, of course, you know, there's a lot of geographical illiteracy um, among our children. And so I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the horn. What is the horn? What... Okay, I, I have been there, and uh, it's the uh, mountain, more or less of a mountain, at the end of uh, South America. And so at this point in time, with Sam is going, you have to sail all the way down the east coast of South America and go around the Horn and then sail up the west coast in order to get anywhere. California, there there was no Panama Canal, and it is very rough. It can be very rough. the to go around as it is pointed out in this book, they had difficulty, especially with a sailing ship, because they had to have the wind that would push them the right way, and the tide was actually the tide goes one way and the wind goes the other, so it's very difficult with with the sailing ship, and even when we were there, you couldn't get to the Horn the first time we went right there because it was, uh, the wind was too heavy. And this was in a, of course, a, a new ship. This was maybe 10 years ago. And so it was a, a, a regular ship, and you could not get anywhere near it. The tides are hard. It really is difficult. But you have to go around that or else you end up in Antarctica, and you don't want to be there. I, you know, I, I've not sailed that far. I've not been that far um, mm-hmm. south, and uh, and so you know, as you're talking, even under a powered ship, you had problems sailing around the Horn. So I can imagine what a, you know, a cutter back in mm-hmm. the 1850s would have struggled with at that time. Yeah, it's, uh, very well. I think as I mentioned in the book. The sailor said that the one time when they were doing it, the sun was shining and they were able to really see it. They never got off on it. There was no reason to get off on it. You know, and, uh, though when we were there, we did get off and we walked up this uh, rickety staircase and went. Uh, and the wind was blowing furiously and walked to the end of it. And there's a monument to all the sailors who lost their lives trying to get around the horn. Mm. 
I'm going to ask you, Lynn, what your favorite part of the book is, if if you have one. And I I know that you know, as a traveler myself, when somebody asks me what my favorite country is, it's like choosing a favorite child, which yeah. you, you can't. Um, but is there, as a writer, as a the the mother of this book, is there a favorite part that uh, you enjoyed writing, and if so, why? Well, I enjoyed writing the part where they are off on. Uh, the Robinson Crusoe Island, and they get lost. And then I thought, well, now what's going to happen? How are they going to get off? And then they meet up with the whaler, which gave them a very good idea of that they were better off on the Calio than on the Mary Skig because it was just you know, they really had a hard life. And then uh, I thought, well, okay. And then the, the the whaler is going to go to Hawaii and. Uh, we don't want to go to Hawaii. What are we going to do now? So they dropped them off in the Galapagos Islands. And having been to the Galapagos Islands, it's still a long way to California from the Galapagos Islands. So mm-hmm. it was kind of great fun to figure out what are we going to do now? How are we going to get there? Did did some of your 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 own travels um, kind of help you with the creation of this book, with some of the chapters that you wrote, and, and you know particularly the destination uh, that you highlighted in your book? Yes, I, yes, of course. Because if you've been there, you have an idea of the geography, as we were mentioning. You have an idea of the weather. You have an idea of what it looks like, and so therefore, it's much easier to uh, create it okay. and make it accurate. Right, right. We we have a couple more minutes, and I'm going to go back to my young co-host. And um, for any last questions, Jedediah, do you have any more questions for Ms. Glaze? Well, I have something to say. I'll be very interested in the second book if you are writing one. I haven't written another one about this one, but I did write a book about... Uh, traveling across the country in a covered wagon uh, for with more or less a girl book. It's called Seasons of the Trail, and it's available too. And uh, there's one place in the uh, in Samuel where he says, "Good heavens, maybe it would have been easier if I'd taken a, a, a wagon train than being on the ship." And actually, the trip across uh, the country was less. Less long and probably somewhat more safe. <laughs> well, but then he'd have, you know, the uh, um, worry about, you know, uh, wars with uh, between, um, you know, with, within the Native uh, American community and all the, the weather hazards. And, you know, so either way, I think it would have been a tough journey for Sam. It would have been a tough journey, yes. Well, of course, most of the people who were in wagon trains were families, so that was helpful. Right. Um, Mika, do you have uh, one last question for Ms. Glaze? Um, yeah, are you planning on writing any more books? I haven't gotten started on any more books lately, uh, but I, I, I'm thinking about it, but I haven't done anything lately. Can you tell us just a little bit about the uh, the other book, Lynn, that, that you wrote? I just want to give a preview um, for okay. you know our listeners, the title and, and the uh, premise of this book. Uh, the published, it was published, uh, oh gosh, 13 years ago, and it's, it's about uh, Lucy and her family. Lucy is 14, and the family has decided to go to California, and the, li- <clears throat> the mother and the children are not the tiniest bit interested, and it, uh, but... 
dad is. So they start off and go from Illinois all the way to California, and they have a lot of adventures there, too. And, uh, of course, there's a slight bit of love interest in that one. Of course, they couldn't have that very well on Sam because there weren't any girls. Right. <laughs> right. In, in what period does um, does your wagon train book take it's place in? It's going in 1860. Okay. Okay. And after the gold rush. So the, the wagon trip to California was not because of the, the gold rush. No, it was not. They just decided that the, that it would be a better place to, to live and to farm. Mm-hmm. So, um, just as a as a final note, your um, your your teaching career. Um, you taught what age group? The fifth fifth grade. I taught uh, kindergarten through fourth grade. Okay, and and what subjects did you teach? Well, in the California school system, it, it's everything. You know, writing, reading, math, uh, social studies, the whole nine yards. Okay. Wow. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for for sharing with us today. Samuel Sails Round the Horn is an adventurous tale about how a young boy made a life-altering decision and how that decision set him on an unexpected journey into manhood. If you want to learn more about Sam's journey, we have a link to Samuel Sails Round the Horn on our website at worldfootprints.com. While there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter, look over our new discovery tours, including our upcoming trips to New Orleans and China, and follow us on your favorite social network. Thank you so much for joining us on this literary journey today, and uh, certainly like to extend another thank you to author Lynn, uh, Lynn Glaze and my young co-hosts, Zamika Peterson and Jedediah Bonner, for helping to foster an engaging conversation. And also a special thank you to the man behind the scenes, my co-host and husband, Ian Fitzpatrick. And uh, kids, I really enjoyed uh, talking to you, and thank you for you know fostering a really good conversation with Miss Glaze. Zamika and Jedediah. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. It was fun for me, and I enjoyed talking with the young people, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And if uh, if any of our listeners would like to join World Footprints Book Club as a listener reviewer, please email us at bookclub at worldfootprints.com. Frederick Douglass once said, Once you learn to read, you will be forever free. So join us next time as we experience a new world through a writer's pen on the next World Footprints Radio Book Club. Until we meet again, happy reading. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved. By adding Seneca Falls, New York to your travel plans, you're opening yourself up to a remarkable part of history. You may know that Seneca Falls is the birthplace of the U.S. women's rights movement in 1848. But did you know that the idea for Seneca Falls Conference started in London, England in 1840? Interested in finding out more? Visit Suffrage Wagon News Channel, suffragewagon.org. 
Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face-to-face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit worldfootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to begin your next adventure today. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. 